want to ask you a couple more questions, Sam, okay? Okay. One is, who else have you talked to about their FBI interviews? Have you talked to other people about their, their uh, grand jury testimony? I don't want to go into it. Okay. So have you, there's one person I talked to. I'm not going into it. And have you talked to them about the general direction, without naming names then, about the general direction that you think Mueller is going in? Yes. Mueller, Mueller thinks that Trump is a Manchurian candidate. He thinks he's, I'm sorry, he thinks he's what? He thinks Trump is the Manchurian candidate. And I will tell you, I disagree with that. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known, is my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello! On today's episode, we're sitting down for Nakia's first viewing of John Frankenheimer's 1962 Cold War conspiracy classic, The Manchurian Candidate. And Nakia, let's just jump straight into it this week. (laughs) This is going to be a fun topic. The Manchurian Candidate is a film I have only seen once, I think, and that was a long time ago. In fact, it's a film that for decades was kind of a lost gem. Released in 1962, it was something of a financial bomb, and shortly thereafter more or less disappeared from circulation. It didn't really reappear until it was re-released for its 25th anniversary in 1987, and only subsequently appeared on home video. So, though the film has been hailed as a masterpiece, I don't know that I can say that everyone but you has seen The Manchurian (laughs) Candidate. I don't know that that's true. Okay. And yet, everyone seems to know about it. Mm -hmm. Like the titles Gaslight and Mm Catch-22, the phrase Manchurian Candidate has entered the lexicon, used and often misused by people who have not necessarily seen the movie. And that brings up the real reason I thought we should probably watch it. (laughs) Since the early days of the 2016 presidential campaign, headlines have been appearing asking the question of whether Donald Trump may actually be a Manchurian candidate. A quick Google search turns up variations of the headline, Is Trump a Manchurian Candidate? (laughs) In The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, The New York Daily News, Salon, Slate, The Hill, The Advocate, and many, many other publications. Mm Mm-hmm. Curiously, in the early days of the campaign, the phrase was used to mean something different than the more recent, more troubling, and more accurate meaning it has acquired. As early as 2015, several people, including Salman Rushdie, suggested Trump was a Manchurian candidate, by which he meant a phony candidate, Hmm. designed to destabilize and demoralize the Republican Party and ensure a win for Hillary Clinton. Oh, that was hopeful. Okay. Right. That was the optimistic (laughs) view. Okay. And he was not the only one that thought this. Following Rushdie's comments, Peter Bradshaw wrote a piece in The Guardian entitled, Is Donald Trump a 2016 Manchurian Candidate? And said it seemed surprisingly plausible because if Trump were working for Clinton, could he possibly do a better job on her behalf? 
This is when everybody thought Trump's campaign was a yeah. total disaster. Yeah. Picking up this theme, James Homan in the Washington Post, in an article titled, Is Trump a Manchurian Candidate? said, The presumptive GOP nominee has spent the past few weeks doing almost everything you would do if you were trying to throw an election. So if nothing else, this just shows how wrong the established media was on Trump's appeal for mm-hmm. a very, like, re- it was really late in the game before that narrative started to yeah, turn. Yeah, it was like six o'clock on election day before that narrative started to turn. But everybody was like, oh, this is impossible, and it's just a ridiculous sort of sideshow, and then this idea that he was possibly a plant. Secretly working right, with the Democratic Party. Like, you actually have no idea about what America looks like. Right. Like, you have no idea how <laughs> right. plausible that is. So, later in the cycle, Uh the narrative changed while the terminology stayed the same. Now Trump was a Manchurian candidate, not because he was secretly owned by Hillary Clinton, but because he was secretly owned by Vladimir Putin. As theories go to explain the otherwise inexplicable rise of President Trump, this one is not only more plausible, it seems to have a veritable and verifiable mountain of evidence (laughs) to support it. It's also a more accurate although still not completely accurate use of the phrase Manchurian candidate. Okay. You know, this is a this is a movie podcast. This is not a political podcast. I don't know how much we want to get into this. <laughs> you picked it. I mean, there is currently a massive criminal investigation that has already resulted in half a dozen convictions, including among others Trump's own national security advisor. And several dozen other indictments. Mm -hmm. There is allegedly evidence of massive collusion between Trump and the Russians, including high-level meetings with the Russians, secret Russian encrypted communication channels, Russian hackers breaking into the DNC database, Russian spam bots flooding social media, and massive, massive amounts of Russian money. There's the infamous 35-page Steele dossier assembled by a former British intelligence officer, which provides substantial evidence that suggests Russia was long cultivating Trump as an asset, and suggests that Trump was in fact being blackmailed by the Russian government. And if all of this sounds far-fetched, we have the evidence of our own eyes and the realization that if Trump were wholly owned by the Russian government, he would not be behaving in office any differently than he is in fact behaving. We have his recent fawning meeting with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, and his unprecedented bowing to Putin in their recent summit, culminating in his committing on-camera acts that rise to and exceed the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors and are nothing short of treasonous, proving that he is, in fact, wholly in the pocket of Putin. Those aren't my words, by the way. Those are the words of John Brennan, former director of the CIA. (laughs) Nakia, what are your thoughts? So, so many thoughts. Um, what are my thoughts? So, well, you know, it's funny that you sort of started at the campaign of Trump when in actuality, I mean, I'm sure we've used it before this, but during Obama's term, there were people that were suggesting that he was a Manchurian candidate. Oh. Um, that he was, you know, somehow, because he didn't, in their opinion, speak of the sort of American exceptionalism, they thought that his presidency was a conspiracy to bring down America because he at times, you know, dare to be critical of... (laughs) uh, Just barely. Just barely critical of America, right? So this idea that he had to be working for some foreign entity because he he wasn't, you know... um, White? Well, right. So that's the thing, right? Is that it was a way to 
further question his legitimacy. So you say he's from Kenya. So you say he's Muslim. So you say he's all these things when in actuality, the problem is that we've elected a black president and that has totally sort of destabilized your idea of what America is, quite frankly, because America has been defined by white power right. since time immemorial. And there was, in fact, no evidence of any of that. No, no. What there was evidence of was racial resentment. Right. And that was enough. That was all you needed to then create this sort of narrative around Obama that he had somehow been planted to destroy America by apparently providing health care and things like that. So it's this sort of idea of legitimacy and who gets to claim power. Well, and this is actually, this is not two different topics. This is the exact same topic because to me that thread of white supremacy mm -hmm. is what is allowing at least half the country to completely ignore the fact that Trump does actually appear to be owned by a foreign government and, and an enemy of the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the Russians and the Nazis were the bad guys. Right. But the one thing they have in common is that threat of white supremacy. Right. And Putin's Russia is now the capital of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that's why all of this is okay, as far as I can tell. I... I saw a poll from just a couple of months ago that said 60% of Americans don't think the Mueller investigation has uncovered any evidence of criminal wrongdoing. <laughs> when in fact, as it I has. said, yeah. it has yeah. half a dozen convictions of major figures and a couple dozen major indictments and is still finding more stuff. Right. And yet nobody seems to care. Nobody in the Republican Party seems to care. I don't know what besides racism, although greed, also <laughs> greed, but Well, but that's racism. inherently tied to racism. I mean, right. our, the capitalist structure is inherently tied to racism, so you can't really pull those two things apart. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think we know that Obama was held to a different standard. We, you know, the fact that Trump was even elected, I mean, that's just, that was not based on his resume. That was not based on his credentials or his knowledge of policy at the most basic of levels. It was because... Or his being a good or politician, his, right. a good campaigner. It was because he promised to sort of return America to what many think the rightful owners, and that's white people. And so you sort of for, forgive or overlook a lot in order to sort of maintain this illusion that you're still at the top of the hierarchy, even though you are getting royally fucked. As an example, the trade war that he's embarked on. Mm -hmm. And what that what we are seeing, it's already doing to... Farmers in the Midwest, particularly Indiana and the pork producers, Wisconsin and the cheese makers, and you got Michigan with the apple producers. And, you know, in the article, they're still like, I, you know, we support Trump. We trust that he is making a good decision and that this will all yeah. come out in our favor. And it's like, he's literally destroying your livelihood. Yeah. But you are going to ride or die for this motherfucker because he's white. And that's all that it is. Because it makes no sense, actually, based on what you depend on to live. So... I mean, this is a man who has, you know, praised dictators and, you know, has said that he sort of wishes that he could have that sort of same authority in America. Mm -hmm. If that is not um, a sort of active undermining of American democracy, then, you know, I don't know what is. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's I think we as Americans need to consider very seriously the possibility that a couple of decades after we declared victory in it, we lost the Cold War mm -hmm. with the election of this president. Mm hmm. 
it's a terrifying concept that nobody seems to want to wrap their heads around, least of all the Republican-controlled Congress that could actually do something about it. Well, because they're making a lot of money right now, and right. they're getting to roll back all the regulations that have been in place that have been making it so that they couldn't get all the money that... I mean, it's... Here's right. So it's a wholesale pillaging of the country is what's happening right now. And so whatever needs to happen in order for that to allow that, they're going to let it slide. Even to go so far as to try to undermine an active federal investigation against the president of the United States. Even to seriously consider a Supreme Court nominee who has said that the president can basically just say, yeah, I'm not going to participate in that. Right. So, <laughs> I mean. So, yeah. But we're here to talk about movies. <laughs> it is actually hard to keep doing this week after week. It's hard to do anything right. that seems frivolous and pop culture related. Well, it's hard to breathe. While but... all of this is happening. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it does feel like we're just distracting ourselves. And we are. From even beginning to wrap our heads around everything mm -hmm. that's going on right now. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, I guess my answer is before we all die in a nuclear war mm -hmm. i would like to have seen some of these films so that's a good answer worthy <laughs> i mean it's difficult to it's difficult to do anything in the it's a bit quite frankly it's been difficult to do things even before trump was in office you know he is the sort of driving force behind a lot of anxieties for people these days um but even during Obama's presidency, there was plenty to sort of right. horrify you about this country. You know, things feel particularly acute for people now. They've felt acute for some populations for a very long time. So it's sort of just like, well, we're spreading the love around. Like, welcome to the world of being afraid right. every day. And so you do have to find ways to protect your humanity, to... Squeeze some joy Squeeze out of some every day. Squeeze some joy to sort of recharge yourself. And I mean, so we have this term that everybody's sort of using now is like this idea of self-care. And it's become, it, it means so many things to different people. It can be, you know, just taking time and, oh, take a hot bath and light some candles. Or it could be hanging out with friends or it could be watching a movie. And there are ways that it's become this really sort of capitalistic idea of like it involves you purchasing things. <laughs> so right. let's take that ugliness <laughs> out of it. And let's just, um, but this idea that you do have to sort of unplug from everything that's happening and find a sort of safe space for yourself to go. And then you can return ideally recharged and sort of ready to re-engage around things but there's also the reality of like you know human beings can hold multiple things at the same time so i can be watching a fish called wanda and also thinking about you know what happened in helsinki and i can be doing so right. it, you know all those parts of me are happening at the same time we aren't we just don't happen to be talking about that on the podcast you can send some emails to your congressperson yes. and then sit down and watch the great british bake-off right. for a couple hours exactly which i reckon is highly therapeutic I recommend it. So all of this, I think, you know, partially explains why we're in the mood to watch The Manchurian Candidate, mm -hmm. why that seems relevant to the current conversation. But also, if, and I haven't rewatched this, like I said, I haven't seen it in a long, long time. I suspect it's going to seem rather innocent mm -hmm. compared to 
the reality that is happening right now. Mm-hmm. That this kind of conspiracy about what it would look like if, as it happens, the Russians and the Koreans interfered with an American election looks kind of naive compared to the reality of what's happening mm-hmm. right now and mm-hmm. sort of simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what this kind of satire of all of that looks like and how well it resonates with the current climate. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I feel like, you know, not long after Trump was elected to office, there was this sort of discussion about can you even do satire anymore? Right. Because it's it has reached a level of absurdity that no one could have even sort of imagined. So this probably will look... Sort of almost like, oh, this is what the Jetsons thought the future would look like. It's just like, no. (laughs) This is what I have been, and I don't know if I coined this phrase or not, but I refer to it as the onion singularity, Mm -hmm. in which you literally see a headline now and you cannot tell whether it's the onion or whether it's an actual news story. There is no difference. That wall has just disappeared. A dark place to be. But this is also like, why... So there could be some people who listen to this podcast, the three people, who... It's at least a dozen. (laughs) Who probably maybe get frustrated with me sometimes because I think I probably do bring a race lens to a lot of the frame. Every week. To a lot of the films that we watch. And one, it is I am black and I'm a woman, so those are sort of the perspectives that I bring to anything. But it's also when we talk about pop culture and the the sort of power of pop culture... To both reflect and reinforce norms and ideas about who we are as a country, that's a very powerful thing. Mm-hmm. You have certain images of white people, you have certain images of black people, you have certain images of Latinx people, then those images are coming from somewhere. They're being birthed out of something, right? And they are they are not always there to challenge. Sometimes they are there to sort of protect and reinforce the existing power structure. Right. Even though it's just a comedy or even though it's just a, a romance or, you know, a horror film or whatever. And when, when we get into these ideas of, like, plants or that something has been planted in order to sort of manipulate, then, well, pop culture, in a sense, is a plant. It is, these things are put out for a reason. Mm-hmm. And a lot of time it is reinforcing existing ideas about certain communities. It's reinforcing existing ideas about certain power structures and it's making these things a norm so that they are no longer questioned, that we just sort of accept them as facts. And as we as we talked about when we talked about Top Gun, mm-hmm. the Pentagon Jingoistic has put military. <laughs> a lot of money and a lot of yeah. support into making movies that reinforce a certain image of America. Right. Which, if nothing else, reinforces the point you're making that pop culture matters. It does. These things matter. Which is not to say that what we do matters. No, we just sort of shit on other people's art, so... Yeah, that's our that's our job. That's our lane. <laughs> Tom, I know you have very strong personal feelings about Johnny and about me. What I would like to find out is how strong they really are. To put it as simply as possible. If Johnny's name were put forward at the convention next week, would you attempt to block him? You're joking, of course. Mr. Stevenson makes jokes. I do not. You're seriously trying for the nomination for Johnny? No, we couldn't make it. But I think he has a good chance for the second spot. I've answered your question, but you haven't answered mine. What question? Will you block us? Will I block you? 
I would spend every cent I own and all I could borrow to block you. There are people who think of Johnny as a clown and a buffoon, but I do not. I despise John Iceland and everything that Icelandism has come to stand for. I think if John Iceland were a paid Soviet agent, he could not do more to harm this country than he's doing now. Okay, so what do you actually know about the Manchurian Candidate? I don't really know anything about the Manchurian Candidate. I don't know who stars in it. I don't know. I just learned that it's about the Cold War uh, when you said that at the top of the show. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, I had no idea who the foreign pro- foreign government was in this in this instance until you. So said what is that? What does the phrase evoke for you? Manchurian Candidate. I have that uh, that notion of you know foreign plant okay. sent to destabilize, like Obama. Well, no, because he wasn't foreign, <laughs> and I wish he had destabilized a little bit more than he did. A lot more than he did. Um, maybe we'd have a different Supreme Court had he destabilized a little bit more. Yeah, so that's what I have in my head when you say Manchurian Candidate. Okay. So, the movie was based on a best-selling novel by Richard Condon, published in 1959. Uh, The New Yorker called the novel a wild and exhilarating satire, and Time Magazine named it one of the best bad novels of the year. Wow, I didn't even know that was an award. Apparently that was an award. Okay. Uh, The film was written by George Axelrod, the screenwriter of The Seven Year Itch and Breakfast at Tiffany's, among others. And directed by John Frankenheimer, who's an interesting director. He's, I think, fairly underrated. Like Sidney Lumet, who we talked about a few episodes ago, he cut his teeth directing live television. Mm -hmm. Came out of that tradition. He went on to direct such films as Birdman of Alcatraz. Manchurian Candidate is probably his best-known film. He did Seven Days in May, uh, The French Connection 2, Black Sunday... I think he's not as well-known as some of his contemporaries. Mm -hmm. I think his body of work is not as celebrated. But if you look at his directing style, it's this really interesting combination of the sort of Sidney Lumet-style realism Mm -hmm. with a lot of other stuff. I mean, he can do surrealism. We'll see that in The Manchurian Candidate. It's, It's He's a really interesting director. And I don't... I need to dig deeper into his his oeuvre (laughs) than I have done. The film was initially a flop, and as I said, it was actually removed from distribution for about 25 years. The urban legend, the Hollywood myth around that, was that the producers, including star and producer Frank Sinatra, (laughs) had felt guilty that the film had somehow partially inspired the Kennedy assassination. Oh. Uh, This is bullshit, apparently. None of that is true. The fact of the matter is Frank Sinatra was pissed off because he had not made any money on the movie. Mm. And he was in a fight over his piece of the profits Mm -hmm. with the United Artists. Mm -hmm. And at some point the rights reverted to him. And he said, well, if I'm not making money off this, nobody's making money off this. And the thing just got shelved for about 25 years. When it first came out, it was actually banned in a lot of foreign markets. Surprise. Particularly those former Iron Curtain countries. Uh, so it was a it was a critical hit, I think, but not a commercial success. Pauline Kael called it a daring, funny, and far-out thriller about political extremists. 
This picture plays some wonderful crazy games about the right and the left. Although it's a thriller, it may be the most sophisticated political satire ever made in Hollywood, Kale said. Uh, Roger Ebert, writing about the film when it was re-released in 1987, said, Here is a movie that was made more than 25 years ago, and it feels as if it were made yesterday. Not a moment of the Manchurian Candidate lacks edge and tension and a cynical spin, and what's even more surprising is how the film now plays as a political comedy as well as a thriller. After being suppressed for a quarter of a century after its first run, after becoming a legend that never turned up on home video, John Frankenheimer's 1962 masterpiece now reemerges as one of the best and brightest of modern American films. Okay. So I'm looking forward to watching it. Because I, like I said, I barely remember it. I guess let's go do that. Okay. I tell you, there's something phony going on. There's something phony about me, about Raymond Shaw, about the whole Medal of Honor business. For instance, when the psychiatrist asked me how I felt about Raymond Shaw, how I personally felt about him, and how the whole patrol felt about him, did you hear what I said? Did you really hear what I said? I said, Raymond Shaw is the kindest, warmest, bravest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. And even now I feel that way, this minute, and yet, somewhere in the back of my mind, something tells me it's not true. It's just not true. It isn't as if Raymond's hard to like. He's impossible to like. In fact, he's probably one of the most repulsive human beings I've ever known in my whole, all of my life. Okay, so during the break, Nikki and I watched The Manchurian Candidate. So, again, this was released in 1962. Uh, The novel had been released in 1959, so it was a little closer to the era and the sort of obsessions that the movie deals with. By the time the movie came out, the McCarthyism era was pretty much over. The nation's short-lived obsession with brainwashing coming out of the Korean War and, you know, stories of American POWs being brainwashed. That was pretty much over by the time the movie came out. People had pretty much realized that it actually doesn't work <laughs> as well as everyone thought it did. Uh, but the paranoia about communism was never higher, actually. This film opened during the Cuban Missile Crisis which probably hurt its performance more than actually helped it. (laughs) As I said, the film was not a financial success. I don't know if people were just not in the mood. Too on the nose there. For this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Or if, I I don't know what word of mouth would have been on this movie, Mm because this is a weird-ass movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with this movie. Nakia, what did you think of it? I liked it a lot, actually. Um, Okay. I thought that both from a a sort of narrative standpoint and also visually, I thought it was doing some really interesting things. Visually, I think it's fantastic. And there are just some scenes in this that are just absolutely fascinating. Like, I want to go back and pick them apart. I think it's as a whole that I'm not sure the film hangs together. Yeah. But let's, we, we can get to that later. And, and that that may be what it is is that there's a lot there are a lot of things happening <laughs> in this movie. Yeah. But it's in- it's interesting like that's the thing you don't know that it all completely works but maybe it's sort of a sum of its parts sort of thing mm-hmm. of like it has some really sort of magnificent parts that you just sort of say as a whole yes it works. Like I I think that's a really interesting I hate using the word brave with stuff like this but like it's actually kind of a brave way to approach a film, right? Particularly around this topic, um, and and that that too is why I can imagine that this was not a huge, right, popular success. Because right. I think probably a lot of people walked out of this going, 
what, what the hell was, what was that? that? Yeah, like, it's definitely know. one of those films that like probably benefits from multiple viewings because mm-hmm. it's very layered. Even just visually, there are a lot of symbols in the shot and yeah. different shots. And so, at a time when that wasn't really the norm of people just sitting down and really sort of parsing a film, I could see Walking Away being like, "I'm not quite sure what that was and if I <laughs> right. liked it or not." Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. Okay, so let's let's kind of go through this thing a little bit. Okay. So, we start out with the pre-credit sequence, which is in Korea in 1952. Mm-hmm. This is where the story starts. Uh, we open, actually, in a brothel. Yes. In a Korean brothel, where the soldiers are having a little R&R with the local girls. Mm-hmm. That's what we're going to call it? <laughs> what, what would you like to call it? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our first introduction to... Raymond Shaw, Sergeant Raymond Shaw, played mm-hmm. by Lawrence Harvey, mm-hmm. who walks into this brothel and puts an end to all fun. Yes. He is apparently humorless, <laughs> joyless, sexless, the men kind of suggest. Somebody says maybe he has a girl back home and somebody else scoffs at that idea that this guy could ever have a girl. Which is strange because later in the film we hear that he is the kindest, warmest, right. bravest man ever lived and that he was the best friend of everyone in the unit. This does not seem to be the case. It does not, no. And then the entire unit out on patrol is captured. Led into an ambush by their interpreter, Chunjin, played by Henry Silva. Who is Spanish and Sicilian. (laughs) Oh, you looked him up, did you? I did. Uh Not Korean, but okay. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) And then we go into the credits, so we don't really know exactly what what happened there. And then we have jumped forward a couple of years, and Raymond is coming home a war hero. Mm-hmm. A big hero's welcome at the airport with a band and a parade and people cheering him, for he is now a Congressional Medal of Honor winner for saving the entire patrol. Yes. Uh, we also have a narrator here for the we first do. few minutes. Yeah. It's almost like watching a war uh, newsreel. Right, it gives it a little documentary flavor. Then that narrator disappears. <laughs> we never hear from that narrator again. It's it's a weird... Again, just that weird mixture of yeah. genres that's happening here. Mm-hmm. And then we meet uh, Mommy. We meet Mommy. Eleanor, played by Angela Lansbury, who yes. was Oscar-nominated for this role. Rightfully so. <laughs> um, yes, so... You know, we see uh, Congressional Medal of Honor winner Raymond Shaw get off the plane and is obviously sort of embarrassed by... Not, not having a good time. Not having a... By the, the sort of pomp and circumstance that's been arranged around his arrival home. And particularly when he realizes that it's been arranged by his ambitious mother. <laughs> is that and, what we're calling her? Sure. And his not-loved stepfather, (laughs) Senator Iceland. Senator Iceland, played by James Gregory. And so in those few minutes, you get a lot of the sort of context of the relationship between those three. It's very clear that Raymond hates his mother and hates his stepfather even more. It's very clear that this is this sort of political theater is something that she plays at quite often and is great at sort of manipulating a moment and an image in order to further the campaign of her not so bright 
uh, husband, <laughs> and we learn that you know he's going to be up for re-election, and so this is coming at a perfect time to sort of set him up for um, some good publicity. Yeah. And there's this great moment when you know they escape the crowds of the parade, and they're in their car, and you know Raymond is pouting, and it's just like you know basically I hate you, mother, and she. It's just like my boys, my my two little boys. My two little boys. <laughs> yes. A perfect encapsulation of who she is to these two men. She <laughs> is both of their mothers. She is sort of the driving force and they have to follow her instructions. It's also not for the last time in the film. Got a little creepy incestuous yes. edge to it. Yes. And apparently the novel was overtly incestuously mm, creepy. Mm-hmm. I think he actually sleeps with his mother oh. in the novel while brainwashed or mm. something. I haven't read the book. I'm just going on what I've read. That but would yes, things. that yeah. that element is definitely there. Yeah. So we have this, you know, she's a little Lady Macbeth, she's a little uh Gertrude Hamlet's mm-hmm. mother. We've got all of that going on. And then we pretty much go right, and this surprised me. Like I said, I barely remembered seeing this movie. We pretty much find out what happened in Korea right away. Because we go straight to Sinatra's character, Mm -hmm. uh, Ben Marco, Marco, Captain Ben Marco. Mm -hmm. And he's having a nightmare. Yes. So we got to talk about this scene. We do. This is one of which, what ends up being a number of my favorite scenes uh, in this film. So we, you know, open on the scene with Ben and Marco. He's in bed um, and he's having a fitful nightmare. And we see the um, Raymond Shaw's and Marco Bennett's squad are on a stage in this sort of (laughs) beautifully ornate, like flowery hotel lobby. Yes. And they look wrong in that space because it's like why are they there um and they have they're in the middle of this like ladies garden meeting and it's all these prim and proper white ladies in in floral dresses and sunday hats the lady up there talking about talking about hydrangeas and so it 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 is immediately off kilter (laughs) because they there's no reason for them to be in that context it is very clearly wrong like something is wrong and Frankenheimer does this amazing shot where he pans a 360 shot across the entire crowd. So we pan across the faces of each of the squad members. And then you see the woman at the podium and she's sort of the first incongruous person. Mm-hmm. And then it pans to the rest of the crowd that's of, of sort of lunching ladies. And in the background, you just sort of hear her talking about hydrangeas. But it's... It's just brilliantly, like, it just that 360 shot just puts you in that space and makes it very clear that, like, it's that something is wrong. It's yeah. sort of that first surreal moment. Have you ever seen that movie? I think it's called, it sort of reminded me, is it called The Witches with um, Angelica? Is it Angelica Houston? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I think it is called The Witches, Angelica Houston. And for some reason, it reminded me of that because it's it. like you couldn't. No one could see that they were witches except children. So when you looked at oh, them, they okay. looked at like, like regular people. Okay. But you knew something was off. Yeah. Like you knew that that wasn't who they really were. And um, then when the camera circles back right. around to the stage. Yes. We suddenly see Chung Jin sitting there. At the podium. At the podium. And the lady at the podium has become Dr. Yen Lo, played by Kai Deeg. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's... 
also not Asian, but we're, we're going to let that go, too. <laughs> Are we going to let that go? <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a long career playing Asian gentlemen, despite mm. being of Egyptian and Sudanese extraction. You know... Get your work. I understand. <laughs> but yes, so we get that sort of 360 shot and all of a sudden we it becomes clear that the, you know, fun with hydrangeas ladies meeting was just a sort of delusion that the squad members were brainwashed into seeing. Right. And that where they, where they really were was this sort of almost medical theater um, at the Pavlovian Institute or the Pavlov Institute, and uh, Yen- in Manchuria, in Manchuria, mm-hmm. uh, where Yen Lo was basically boasting of the success <laughs> yeah. of their brainwashing program, demonstrating the success of their brainwashing to an program. assorted crowd of so Chinese and Russian yeah. and Korean mm-hmm. generals, and yes, yes. And it's, again, amazing shot because there are these giant posters of Stalin and Mao in the background of the stage. And the squad is, you know, still sitting there very much out of it, not really, you know, aware of where they are. And then Yen Lo uh, begins to sort of demonstrate his control over the squad, but particularly his control over Raymond Shaw. Yeah. And he asks him, who do you like? The most. He asked him, who do you dislike the least? Like, the, the least, least right, yeah. interesting. <laughs> like, he's already figured out that Raymond doesn't really have any friends right. in the squad. But who do you dislike the least? Mm-hmm. And he names Sinatra's character. And Yen Lo says, well, no, that's not going to work because we need him to recommend you for a medal. Right. Who's next? And they name it. He, he names another guy. And Yen Lo says, okay, well, please strangle him to death. Mm-hmm. And he does. And he does. And then Sinatra wakes up. Screaming, as people in movies always do, mm-hmm. from dreams. Mm-hmm. So then in the very next scene, Sinatra is reporting this mm-hmm. to, like, the Pentagon Brass or somebody. Right. And this, is again, is what I find so interesting about this, because it's... I had assumed and sort of remembered this as this kind of slow-boil paranoia thing where mm-hmm. you have to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Kind of an Ira Levin, Rosemary's Baby thing. But no, it's like the mystery is sort of laid out for us right from the start. Yeah. We we know Raymond's brainwashed. Like we we can tell that from the dream. Right. And Sinatra immediately reports it, although I guess they don't believe him at first. Right. I mean, the mystery, yeah, for the audience is less about the how of it and more about the why. It's like, okay, right. so why was this right. done? Right. And what's the plan? What is the what's plan? What's the ultimate plan? Right. And that's I think that's the first time we hear the, the army psychiatrist asks him, tell What's me about Raymond Shaw, and Raymond he says, Shaw. Raymond Shaw is the kindest, warmest, bravest <laughs> human being I've ever known. Right. And it's clearly a line that has been drilled into him a hundred times, <laughs> and not coming from any actual real feeling he right. has uh, for Raymond. Okay. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, Senator Islin is gearing up his nonsense. Right. So they've decided that Marco, uh, Sinatra's character, is a little too damaged. Oh, that's right. Yes. To be, to continue on in uh, government intelligence. So they reassign him to the Public Relations Corps. Which, I got a question that, as a, <laughs> as a former communications professional, oh, this guy is mentally unstable. 
let's, you know, give him... Put the sweaty, twitchy guy on TV. <laughs> right. That's a bad idea. <laughs> but they think it's going to be essentially an easy gig. And so, you know, one of the first times we get to see the bombacity of Iceland is at this uh, press conference with the Secretary of Defense, I believe yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I think it is, right. In another fantastically it's a filmed beautiful scene. beautiful scene. It's such a great scene. So, you know, the Secretary of Defense is announcing that there's going to be cuts in the defense budget. And, you know, Iceland stands up in a huff in a very, like, he's basically supposed to be a stand-in for McCarthy. Right. This sort of witch hunt style. There are 207 right. communists in the State you Department. Know, waving this paper around that has nothing on it. And say, <laughs> <laughs> these are the names of all the communists who are in the Defense Department. Because, and this is important, Angela Lansbury has given him the yes. nod and told him to do yes. this. And that scene, so what we have is... In the back, the sort of mid-ground of the scene, on the sort of right side, you have the Secretary of Defense and Marco as the sort of press relations officer sitting at a table with microphones. Yeah. And then on the left side of the screen, you have Iceland in the uh, audience standing up, waving around the list of communists. But the foreground is sort of where all the, the actual action is happening. Yeah. Because you have two TV sets, one on the side of the screen with the secretary and another on the side of the screen where Iceland is, but and Angela Lansbury is sort of sitting next to it, watching her husband yeah. basically spout the words that she gave him to say. And she's just sort of nodding along. And it's a really powerful moment of like her as puppet master, both of him and then of the media, because yeah. she understands the power of the media and how the media is sort of complicit in this whole theater that she's orchestrating. And the way that media can, you know, sort of drive a narrative, incite hysteria, and and create public opinion. Yeah, she's she's got that down. She's, she's a little later perfect. in the film. She says something like, "She's talking to her husband." She says, "Are they saying? Are there any communists right, in the saying State how Department?" Many. No, they're right. asking how many. Right. Like we've already sold Changed that narrative. The narrative. Right. Right. Uh, but yeah, that shot is just amazing, mm-hmm. and that's a Frankenheimer trademark you can see it throughout this film of the foreground background Mm -hmm. he's got those deep focus lenses going yeah and so you have one character close up in the foreground and then another character in the background and it is in the scenes with them it is usually angela lansbury's in the foreground right and Islin or shaw or whoever are in the background right she's directing the action right right and it actually sort of reminded me a little bit of like when we talk about particularly the power of media and and television and we're coming off of the Nixon debate Mm -hmm. that crushed him and it was all because how he looked on TV. He just looked so bad and and dishonest on TV and that was all that it took, really. And then that sort of took me to the way that people are filmed in this movie Hmm. is really interesting because they aren't... So it's filmed in black... It's black and white, but everyone just about everyone, looks ill. And a lot of it is because of a number of the characters they've been bringing, and they are sort of ill. In right, their, in, right. In so mind. Sinatra and Lawrence Hardy, right. they're all sweaty. They're all sweaty. Twitchy. And, and twitchy. And even Senator Iceland is sweaty and twitchy. And mostly mm-hmm. I think that's because he drinks. Um, <laughs> but it's Angela Lansbury is perfectly quaffed yeah. and cool the entire time. But I just think that the way 
because they their faces almost look like too real. It's hyper real. It's very the way that they are filmed. The sort of texture of their faces is very clear, mm-hmm. and and then when they're sweaty, it's very clear. Um, and I just, like that was just an interesting choice about how someone appears on film sort of changes our ideas about their character and who they are and if and whether or not they're a good or a bad guy sort of. mm-hmm. but. I also think that's interesting and when we get to the other female characters let's circle back and mm. talk about all the female characters mm-hmm. there's a there's a trio of yes blonde blonde here yes <laughs> okay so from here we go back to the dream, mm-hmm. but it's a little different. It is a little different. So now we're in the home of Corporal Melvin, who was uh, the black soldier of yeah. the squad. Played by James Edwards. And he's having a nightmare. And, you know, the screen dissolves again, and then we find ourselves in his nightmare. Back, back in the ladies' garden we're club. back in the ladies' garden club, but now <laughs> all the ladies are black. Fucking amazing. It's I fucking loved brilliant. it. I loved it's it. Because <laughs> it's just... That one change, <laughs> one that they they realized that that was important. That the, yeah. that world wouldn't be white for him. Right, that's what he would see. It had to be black in order for him to sort of be comfortable in that space and accept yep. that he yep. couldn't be in a room full of lunching white ladies. He had to be in a room full of lunching black ladies. And so their language changes and the way they're speaking with each other changes, yep. and it becomes this black space. And I just thought that was amazing, uh, and I loved it until so you get that same sort of three sixty turn, and it's perfect. And that's when we see Raymond commit his second monstrous act against his squad. When Yenlo instructs him to shoot Bobby Limbick, who's basically known as the unit mascot. He's the youngest soldier, shoots him in the head. And so we see Raymond point the gun at Bobby, and Bobby's just smiling. Yep, just grinning up at him. Just grinning away, and he shoots him in the head, and then you just see this splatter of blood on the Stalin poster. Yeah. And it's it's an amazing shot. And then Melvin wakes up screaming. Yeah. And then the interesting thing about that is, so he wakes up, and obviously he wakes his sleeping wife up, and his wife is just like, oh, you're having this nightmare again? She's like, but, and he explains... You know, I don't understand why I see Raymond doing these really horrific things in this dream. And she says, well, you liked, you like him, don't you? And then he gives the Raymond Shaw as the bravest, Very kindest, warmest human being I've ever met in yeah. my life. Yeah. And she gives him the idea that he should send a letter to Raymond explaining the dreams and just sort of reconnect with your old friend right. and see if that your helps you. Your best friend. Your best friend, Raymond, Raymond, Raymond and see if that helps. So, okay, so now Raymond is in New York. He's taken a job with this left-wing journalist. And it's and it's while he's reading Melvin's letter mm-hmm. that he gets a phone call suggesting he plays a little solitaire yeah. to pass the time. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time we find out about the Queen of Diamonds. Right, his trigger. Right. So he's playing solitaire. He comes across, the. he flips over the Queen of Diamonds card. The phone rings. And the person on the other end says, you know... Get ready for a, what they say is like a checkup appointment. Right. Um, and then uh, the next scene, we're in Hoburn Gaines's office, and they've gotten a sort of telex saying that Raymond Shaw was involved in a hit and run accident. Right, which is just a smoke screen right. to get him back in some hospital right. that the Soviets are controlling. That's where Yen Lo comes to visit. Right. Yen Lo and a Russian agent tune up their instrument essentially. Yes. <laughs> Yen Lo is an interesting character. Yen Lo is very interesting. Um, he's very funny, uh, and very... He's very relaxed. He's very not that traditional 
terrorist. Quote, unquote, right. oriental right. bad guy. Right. Mm-hmm. He's very relaxed. He's very Western. Yes, he's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. Yes. He makes a note of saying, I have to go to Macy's, you know. <laughs> yes, my, my wife, wife has given me a shopping list. has given me a list of shopping to do, which is, you know, <laughs> not so communist. <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> and, and he makes little jokes. He makes little jokes about that. Right. The Soviet guy says that this hospital where they have this set up it's is, a rest home for wealthy alcoholics it's a rest home for wealthy alcoholics and he says it's one of the few Soviet owned properties that turns a profit <laughs> and you're the most careful there of that yeah. virus of capitalism yes. it'll infect you <laughs> as he heads to Macy's and then I think, you know, this is sort of one of the more interesting scenes with Yen Lo where they sort of talk about their ideas of American morals yeah. Um, and so talking about Raymond Shaw and the sort of benefit of the brainwashing program is, you know, you, you, you train someone to kill and then they have no memory of having killed. So there's no guilt and there's no fear of being caught because they don't remember doing it. Right. He and calls those uniquely, uniquely American symptoms, yeah. guilt and fear. So that's one of the first sort of moments of like a political ethos around you know, what it is to be American in a geopolitical space. And so you have to sort of strip someone of these very American traits of guilt and fear in particular in order to make them of use, essentially. Yeah, it's a... And this is... I find myself at the end of this film trying to figure out what the film was actually trying to say and what it's satirizing. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, it's... With the character of Iceland, it's satirizing McCarthy mm-hmm. and this whole paranoia the red about scare, yeah. communist plots. Mm-hmm. But the film is, in fact, based on mm-hmm. a communist plot. And it's poking fun at America in a lot of ways. But scenes like that one that you just talked about make it clear that the Soviets and the Chinese are just, like, unconditionally evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No fear, no guilt. Right. Right. That they're. And at the same that time, there's this that they're, axis of right, evil. The, so it's not anti anti communist, this right, film. Right. It's also at the same time, it's sort of setting them up to be the sort of hypocrisy around communism. Like, yes, you are, you say you're communist, and yet you're going to go shop at Macy's and you're going to take advantage of this sort of very American capitalistic sort of exercise. Right. And you're making money from wealthy alcoholics and right. so. This, this idea that you actually... It's like how the 9-11 terrorists went to right. strip clubs the Yeah, so you actually right. don't stand for anything. Like, it's all a farce. Right. So, yeah, I, th- I thought that was a really interesting scene. Because I think there are visual symbols throughout the film, but other than this sort of moment of dialogue with Yen Lo and the Soviet operative, I don't know that you get any sort of explicit sort of political thesis in that way. In this yeah, movie. not really, no. And I, let, let's talk about that more when we get to motives, because mm-hmm. I think that gets interesting when we talk mm-hmm. about Angela Lansbury's character mm-hmm. and, and Iceland. Yeah. Um, all right, where, where so, are we here? Uh, before Yen Lo leaves, the Soviet is worried that they're going to send Raymond Shaw out to do the big job without having sort of tested him in any sort of way as an assassin. So the right, Soviet right. wants we to need do... Another test. Right, we need a practice assassination. Oh. <laughs> And first, Yen Lo says, okay, we'll have him kill one of your guys. Right. And the Soviet's like, no, we're, we're, we're short staffed. We're way understaffed. <laughs> as it is. I can't spare anybody. I'm sorry. Uh, so then they land on uh, Gaines. The, ju- uh, the, the journalist. The that liberal journalist. That Shaw's working for. Yes. So Raymond does turn up at Gaines' house at four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Gaines is in this weird 
feathered bed jacket. Yes. He says it's the only warm thing in his home, and it's his wife's old bed jacket. Um, so it's, I a, it's a weird scene. Yeah, it's a That's choice. That's the thing. Yeah. This movie has a lot of... I mean, there's there's the weirdness of like the brainwashing plot and all of that. Right. Then there's just a lot of random weirdness yeah. that doesn't seem to be connected to anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of those scenes. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, like, is there a weird homosexual subtext? Right. Or, like, liberal Because usually in movies of this era, yeah. that would be coding mm-hmm. for, oh, Gaines is gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, nothing in films really happened by accident, particularly around wardrobes. So I'm, I'm not sure. sure. In this movie, I'm not sure there isn't some stuff that happens by accident. We gotta talk about fucking Janet Lee's character. Oh, that was, yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so he's in this sort of feather duster of a robe, and Raymond just, you know, very calmly and collectedly just goes up and shoots him. Yeah. And that's the end of games. Yeah. And then he takes his job. Because <laughs> that's how that works. Because that's how that works. Just, they they refer to this guy as the most influential political journalist, journalist in America, yes. and Raymond just gets his job because yeah. the guy dies. That's a uh, yeah. You know, you move know. up the ladder. It happens. Not sure how that works, but okay. It's American capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we pretty much are at Janet Lee's character. No, no, we have to. Okay, no, we're skipping a scene. With, scene yeah, with Marco and his colonel or yes. or one of the Pentagon guys. Is it Milt? Is that it? You're better on names than I am, I, I guess. I think sure. Maybe. So <laughs> this is this is the guy that's coming to tell him that the PR duty to which he had been assigned turns out he's too fucked up to do that. <laughs> which they should have known <laughs> yeah. before they put him in that assignment. <laughs> so now they're just sort of taking him off the board right. altogether. But this is the first time that we get Marco saying, I know that I when you ask the when I yes. asked the question about how I personally feel about Raymond Shaw. I think he's the kindest, warmest, bravest movie yeah. <laughs> man. But then he says, but I know in the back of my head that that's not true. Yeah. Everyone hated Raymond and Raymond hated all of us. Yeah. He's not only hard to like, he's, he's impossible, impossible to, to like. like he and then says. he says he's a repulsive human being. <laughs> so this is, I know that that is true. Yeah. But if you ask me, I will say kindest, warmest, bravest, etc. Um, and the colonel is still not on board and it's still just like, okay, you're obviously struggling with yeah. something. We're going to put you on sick leave. Indefinite sick leave. Indefinite leaves. sick leave. And that's when we cut to Marco sweating and twitching on a train, struggling to light a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously having a total breakdown. And doing I laughed when he dropped the cigarette into it his drink. drink. It's a nice little bit of physical. Again, I used to be a smoker. That's just something that, you know. <laughs> and he's doing all this. In front of uh, Janet Lee's character, Eugenie or Rosie. <sighs> yeah. Uh, this this is a problem. It's a for weird me. encounter. This whole scene is so weird in a way that seems to have nothing to do with the actual plot of the right. movie. As far as the narrative of the movie goes, as far as we discover anywhere in the movie, she is of no importance. This is a random encounter yeah. <laughs> with a stranger. Yeah. Even just the way Frankenheimer shoots it, and mm-hmm. it's one of those things that's like, is there just bad editing going on mm-hmm. here, or is it deliberate? Because the first shot, he's sitting there on the left side of the screen, lighting the cigarette. Then we got get a shot of her, and she seems to be kind of across the room, mm-hmm. off to the right. And then there's a shot where he's trying to light a cigarette, and he fails. And then we cut to a shot, and she's like sitting right she's beside right next to him. him. Yeah, she's right and next to him. 
she didn't move. We mm-hmm. didn't see her move. She just sort of appears there mm-hmm. in the screen. Again, it's just like, is that just a weirdly edited shot? Mm-hmm. Or does that mean something? Mm-hmm. And then the dialogue yeah. that they have. So after being frustrated with his shakes and not being able to, to light a cigarette, he storms off. He knocks the table over and just sort of runs to the in-between space between the cars. Yeah. She follows him, lights a cigarette in her mouth, taps him on the shoulder, and hands him the cigarette and then they have the most surreal dialogue <laughs> I've so possibly weird. ever heard. It's like a dream sequence. It's, it is like a dream sequence. And it's it's heightened because he's already sort of out of it. Like right. he's, he's already sweaty and just sort of not fully present. But she is hyper-focused on him. So it starts, she says, Maryland's a beautiful state. And he's sort of looking, he says, this is Delaware. And she says, I know. I was one of the original Chinese workmen who laid the track on. And, and so you're just like, what the fuck? And, <laughs> and then, she, you know, Maryland is a beautiful state. So is Ohio, for that matter. And then he starts talking about Columbus's football team. Uh, and then they talk about the railroad business. And, and she gets into telling him her exact address. And she's very clear about it. And she's like, I need you Makes to remember it. repeat it back to her. And here's my phone number. I need you to remember that. And so you are watching it wondering if it's code that they're speaking right. to each other. Right. That's the thing. It's like, are, is she his handler? Right. Are these trigger phrases? Because that's how it plays out. And he responds at what he at one point he says, "Are you Arabic?" Right. And again, there's no just no context for no that. No context for that. No justification for that. She's comment. a blonde white woman. Yeah. <laughs> Her name is not Ar- Arabian. Like there's no. And then she asks him if he's Arabic. And says, "By which I mean, are, are you, you married?" married? Like it's all this weird. I, I don't understand. It's a very I don't odd understand scene. it. And it's not the last odd scene of dialogue that they have together. No, all she's of, just weird. She's and and if that is just her character, it's a weird choice to make in a movie that's about sort of conspiracy and subterfuge. Because if she's just supposed to be weird, then it's easy to sort of project onto her some sort of ulterior motives because it's like, okay, well, she must be speaking code or right. she must be his handler and she knows his sort of trigger phrases. But nothing things. he does indicates no. that he's under control no. anywhere else in the movie and she stays with him the whole rest of the movie. Right. But does nothing. Like She then just basically becomes his sort of sounding board throughout the rest of the film. Right. She doesn't stop him from no. doing anything. She doesn't encourage him to do anything. There's no, She just becomes a girlfriend, essentially. There's no evidence in the plot to suggest that she his handler no. or anything like that. No. Unless this is a longer term game right. that is happening. Right. Here. Unless they're trying to suggest that, yes, the movie ends here, but there are more Manchurian candidates out right. in the world sort of thing, which is that And I also, I also wonder if it's just, apparently, because I looked this up, and apparently all of this dialogue comes straight from the book, mm-hmm. and everybody thinks it's weird. <laughs> and it, it's not just us. <laughs> Like, everybody has analyzed this scene and, like, what the hell is going on in this scene. Roger Ebert suggested that it was hinting that at another layer of conspiracy that's going Mm -hmm. on here. Mm -hmm. Um, And it may be just, it's supposed to be unsettling. And I think the way Frankenheimer shoots it is interesting because he could have shot it as playful banter. Right. This sort of 40s style. And it would still be weird dialogue. But if they were saying it with, like, humor and kind right. of flirtiness, it would seem Ease less weird. It, it would be yeah. just like, okay, we're just babbling to mm-hmm. each other. We're just kind of saying nonsense to each other, and it's cute. But no, he shoots it very straight. Yeah. 
and Janet Lee plays it very straight. Uh, it's it's weird. It's an odd scene. It is a very odd scene. I mean, and, and maybe it's saying something about how when you're in that space of sort of government intelligence and you're involved in conspiracy, every interaction has that potential or every interaction sort of seems as though it could be layered and hiding the truth. But yeah, I mean, again, you we have to, as an audience, project a lot onto that scene in order to explain it and make it make sense. So it's, it's just, uh, it's an odd scene <laughs> because she really is sort of inconsequential throughout the rest of the film. She, right. she doesn't factor in right. much at all. Okay. Where, where, where are we now? So. Okay. So. Oh, Chunjin visits Raymond. Oh, yes. Chunjin reappears. Yes. And, uh, says that Senator Iceland got him a visa and he needs a job and he would like to work with Raymond. He says he can do anything. And Raymond being the asshole that he is. Says, I don't need an interpreter. We speak the same language here. Um, and, which, actually, so going back to the kindest, warmest thing, I like that everything we see in Raymond, he is an absolute asshole. Like, there is never a moment where the audience thinks Raymond is a good person. There's, there are moments later where Maybe we warm up to him a little a bit. A little bit, but really he's... It helps when he's drunk. It the does, scene where he's drunk He's better later, when he's drunk. I, I liked him better. But for the most part, he's, he is... An yeah, asshole. He's a yeah. Um, so he decides to hire Chun Jin um, as his valet and cook. Which a few minutes later, when Marco comes looking for Raymond mm-hmm. and opens the door, and Chun Jin's there, he immediately punches him in the face. Immediately punches him <laughs> in the face. And you get this pretty awesome sort of karate fight scene. It is a good fight scene between uh, Marco and Chun Jin, and the whole time Marco is screaming. What was Raymond doing with his hands? How did the old ladies turn into Russians? So he's <laughs> right, trying t- to interpret right, the dream. Taking all these points from his dream and saying, knowing that Chunjin was there, trying to figure out and put it together. Yeah. Uh, and then the police are called and they take him it's, away. It's a good fight scene. It's it very is. brutal. Mm-hmm. It's not like a movie of the time fight scene. Right. It's more like a modern fight scene. Yeah. Where it's like they're fighting dirty. And right. It's not super choreographed. He gets him down and he's just kicking mm-hmm. him in the ribs. A lot of eye, eye gouging. Yeah. A lot of mm-hmm. <laughs> attempts at eye gouging. Uh, I'll give you a little interesting Hollywood side note about that fight. Mm-hmm. Sinatra actually broke his hand when he chopped through the table. Oh. Or broke his finger or something, which had far-reaching ramifications. Sinatra had been scheduled to play Dirty Harry mm. with William Friedkin directing. Mm-hmm. Had to drop out of that because his hand was broken. So Clint Eastwood got that part and set off that whole legacy. Right. All because of a broken All hand. because of a broken pinky on Sinatra's hand. That's, you know, the universe puts people where they're supposed to be, man. <laughs> if I got to break your pinky, I'm going to do it. So then we get this great shot. We're back at the Iceland home, and we open on the shot of Senator Iceland reflected in a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of Lincoln. There's a lot of Lincoln imagery. imagery around the Icelands in their home. They have busts of Lincoln. They have portraits of Lincoln. They have paintings of Lincoln. And this idea, this sort of juxtaposition of the image of Honest Abe, you know, the great emancipator, the great unifier, Republican, Republican, surrounding this this political family that is built on bringing down the American democracy. Right. Later in the film at the costume party, he goes as Lincoln. He goes as Lincoln. So again, it's this sort of idea of like, you must create this very American image 
of honesty, of trust, of a united country, when in reality what's happening in the background is the undermining of everything. And that's when we get the sort of funny scene of Iceland is complaining to Eleanor about the fact that she keeps changing the numbers of the communists <laughs> right. in Congress. I can't keep up. I can't remember how many communists are supposed to be in the government. And he is um, pouring Heinz 57 ketchup over his steak. Yeah. And she says, so just pick a number. Right. We'll settle on a number. They pick 57. Yeah. And that's sort of what <laughs> like she says. There are 57 <laughs> communists in the State Department. Right. Okay, so we got to pick up the pace here. Let's get to the final subplot of this movie, which mm-hmm. is Josie. Yes. Jocelyn. This is the the humanizing <laughs> scene with Raymond. Mm-hmm. Is Ben comes over and he and Raymond are drinking and Raymond starts telling about this long lost love, Jocelyn. Yeah. Played by Leslie Parrish, mm-hmm. who was the daughter of Senator Jordan. Mm-hmm. A longtime political enemy of the Icelands. Yes, liberal <laughs> senator. Right. So you didn't you didn't warm up to Raymond when he was talking about his lost love and they had a meet cute, you know, the he was bit by a snake. She Yeah. Took off her shirt and wrapped Mm -hmm. his leg up and... I mean, I'm not a fan of women as devices for a man's growth in general. Which is absolutely what she (laughs) is. That's all that she is. Like, women who have to endure hateful, borderline abusive men in order to make them better in the end. Yeah. That their personal growth is reliant upon supplication of this woman's sort of acceptance of the fact that she has to endure this man in order to help him grow. So that did not endear me to Raymond at all because he is an asshole. And it also just, part of it struck me as it was him sort of acting out against his mother because he knew once he found out that, you know, Josie was Senator Jordan's daughter and Senator Jordan has been a longtime foe of um, his mother and Senator Iceland and, and, you know, quote unquote liberal communists. It was just like, okay, this would be sort of a good way to piss off my mom, sort of thing. Right. <laughs> so he, he immediately proposes right. like, to her. I want to marry you. Right. Um, so, no, that did not uh, make him a better person uh, to me. But he seems to think that, you know, he was so lovable. He's like, you know, when I was with Josie, I was lovable. Oh, he keeps using that yes, word. Yes. Josie was lovable and Senator Jordan was lovable and the whole thing was lovable and none of it was lovable. <laughs> At all. Um, but, you know, Raymond hasn't had a lot of love in his mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. So. No, he, yeah, has some. But again, it's like your sort of emotional growth should not be at the expense of the women in your life. Um, <laughs> okay, so we got, we, the plot's getting convoluted here, so we're going to jump around a little bit. Sure. Okay, so meanwhile, Ben has pretty much figured out what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's gotten the people at the Pentagon or wherever to agree that something is going on here. He's managed to identify some of the people from the dream Mm -hmm. as, you know, Russian agents, Chinese agents. So he's sticking close to Raymond. Mm -hmm. He goes to meet him in a bar, but here's where the brainwashing technique, there are some flaws flaws. in the system Mm -hmm. because Raymond overhears the bartender say his trigger words. Right. Totally by accident. Which is, I mean, that's that was pushing it a little because the bartender says exactly past the time with some solitaire. And who says that, really? <laughs> you might say, here, play some solitaire, which may also work. I don't know if you okay. have to literally say past the time with solitaire. Okay, but to be fair, 
it seems like Raymond is triggered whenever he sees a Queen of Diamonds, yes. too. Because mm-hmm. later he gets triggered by that without mm-hmm. that particular trigger freeze. Mm-hmm. That's poor planning. Like, that's not <laughs> an object that is so rare that True. you want to program this guy to do anything he hears mm-hmm. after he sees a Queen of Diamonds. That's a fair point. Yeah, yes. That was poor planning on yes. their part. Because uh, so the bartender says something about go jump in a lake, and Raymond goes and jumps goes in a and lake. Goes and jumps in a frozen lake. <laughs> so in the interim, uh, Eleanor has obviously been plotting and realizes that uh, she needs to find a way for Raymond to settle down. And she thinks that Raymond should marry Josie, the girl that she called a communist tart not long ago. Yeah, she's the one that made him <laughs> dump her, and right. now she decides that she could be useful. Right. That she get married in June, right before the convention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we just, we need to make that happen. So he arra- she arranges a welcome home costume party. Right. Josie has been in Paris for the last couple of years. She's returning home. So let's have a party and get these two kids together. And so that's when we get Senator Iceland dressed as Abraham Lincoln. Uh-huh. Very drunken. And, you know, this sort of wonderful shot of... An American flag made of caviar that he sort of just scoops into. <laughs> yes. um, and Eleanor pulls Raymond to the side into a separate room and says, you know, why don't we pass the time by playing a little solitaire? And so Raymond sits down yes. and starts to play solitaire. Which is the big reveal that she, she is, is his, his American, American handler. handler. Right. Right. We um, knew she was evil, but we right. didn't know she was working with the Soviets and the Chinese. Um, so the Queen of Diamonds cards comes up. She gets pulled out of the room by Senator Iceland, so she takes the card, you know, obviously because it's a very important card, and she doesn't want anything to happen. Um, And just as she leaves, (laughs) Josie enters the room dressed as the Queen of Diamonds card. One of those coincidences. Which is a weird-ass costume. Like, not as Queen from Alice in Wonderland or anything. Like, she's literally a playing card. The Queen of Diamonds. Of the Queen of Diamonds. And so, obviously, Raymond is enraptured. Yeah. And while he and Josie are making out in a room, uh, Eleanor is with Senator Jordan and is asking if he would in any way try to block Senator Iceland's run at the uh, vice presidential nomination. Right. And we get that great speech yes. from from Senator Jordan. Right. Um, where he's like, are you kidding? I would... Will do everything in my power to, to stop block that you. nomination. You know, everyone else thinks he's a clown and a buffoon. Yeah, and this will be. This is you know pretty relevant to our times. Yeah, um, <laughs> we were talking earlier about the resonance of this right. movie for now. But he gives this great speech where he says, you know, everyone else thinks that Senator Iceland is just a clown and a buffoon, um, but I know that you know if he were a Soviet agent, he couldn't be any more dangerous than he is now right. to this country. Um, and she just storms off. Yeah. And that's when she has decided that Raymond must kill Senator Jordan. Right. And this is where I start to think that Ben really isn't suited to any kind of duty whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Because Ben, who at this point knows Raymond has been brainwashed. Yes. Knows there's some plan going on. Uh, Ben and Josie show up having just run off and gotten married. Mm -hmm. And Ben lets them go off. Right. Well, because Josie says... I can fix him. But, Which, again, is a problem. But Josie with doesn't even... Josie right. has no fucking idea right. about the brainwashing I think or she just thinks she he just has thinks mommy issues. Right. But he has or some he serious has mommy issues. Some PTSD or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and Ben just lets them go off, which mm-hmm. turns out not to have been such a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
This is another scene that I just loved. Yeah, it, no, it's a great, it's, it's such a, a great, great sequence. So Raymond, after getting the instructions from his mother, he goes to Senator Jordan's home in the middle of the night. Jordan is in the kitchen making a snack, which one I love because I think with Gaines's murder, he thought Gaines was going to be asleep because it was late at night. And I think he probably thought Senator Jordan was going to be yeah. asleep as well. And the people are always awake when he arrives, which I think is funny. Um, so Senator Jordan's in the kitchen making a snack. And Frankenheimer makes this great choice to shoot the scene sort of from a low angle. Mm -hmm. So we see Raymond standing, holding the gun at his side. And there's like a big American Eagle sculpture sort of looming behind him, which again is this sort of imagery of Americana and democracy all through this movie, juxtaposed with sort of the corruption that is actually happening in the action of the scenes. Um, So he has the gun at his side and the senator is facing him holding a carton of milk. Yeah. And Raymond shoots him, and the bullet grows through the carton of the milk and hits the senator in the heart. And he falls to the ground. And what would typically, in a scene like that, what would typically be this sort of like pooling of red blood is instead this pooling of it's, white milk. It's, it's really amazing because the symbolism of, you know, Senator Jordan, this accused communist, this accused red, and he's not bleeding red, he's bleeding like pure American white. And it's perfect. It's such a great visual scene. Of like the it's like this death of American purity, yeah, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, that was like a beautifully shot scene. And then Josie comes in and, and comes sees in. this, mm-hmm. and it's it's such a good shot. He's shooting down, shooting from that low angle all the way down this long hallway, and doesn't move the camera. Mm-mm. Josie comes in. Raymond turns and shoots her. So she's way in the background. Raymond's... In the foreground. In the foreground. Yeah, it's it's a really amazing, amazing shot. And he just walks out, steps over her body. Yeah, she's she's almost an afterthought. Yeah. Um, she just happened to come downstairs. That's right. really what it was. Which is your objection right. to her character. Exactly. I mean, that's... The, the term that comes out of the comic book world is fridging. That mm-hmm. her character has just been fridged. Mm-hmm. She's just been killed off for the main character's development. Right. She, And so he walks out of the home. And the weird thing about this time, you know, if we we sort of flash back to the Yen Lo conversation where he's, you know, the benefit of the brainwashing is that there's no fear and there's no guilt. And yet when we see Raymond leaving Senator Jordan's home, he's crying. Yes. So obviously there's there there are cracks forming in this in the machine. So that's actually an interesting question about this movie, because a little later or not too long later. We have been deprogramming Raymond mm-hmm. with a deck of cards that's all Queens of Diamonds mm-hmm. and just trying to break through that that conditioning that's hardwired into Raymond's brain. But maybe that moment is the moment that Raymond starts to break mm-hmm. the programming is when he's forced to kill Josie. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Marco knows the whole deal with the, the importance of the Queen of Diamonds and the deck of cards. He yeah. goes to visit Raymond after the news has come out that Senator Jordan and Josie have been murdered. And even though the newspapers don't say that it was Raymond Shaw, no one knows that it was Raymond Shaw, Marco knows. Marco knows. And he feels bad that he let... As he go, should. As he should. a dumbass move. <laughs> but he goes to see Raymond and um, with these, the loaded deck of Queens of Diamonds... And sort of starts the deprogramming process. And that's when we we get Raymond sort of laying out everything that happened in Korea. You know, the patrol was taken by a Russian airborne unit and flown across the Manchurian border. And they'd been worked on for three days. 
And Marco basically tells him to forget everything that happened at the senator's house. Yeah. Which is an interesting choice. And right. I don't know He's brainwashing he, Raymond right, in that right. moment. And he tries to figure out sort of the why of the whole thing. And Raymond doesn't know. And that's, I mean, that's typical. The, the instruments never really know why they've been created. Right. The puppet doesn't know. Right. Um, he only knows that there's an American operative and something is supposed to happen around the convention. That's the only thing that he knows. Right. So then Marco begins to say, okay, you don't work for them anymore. If anyone, you know, tells you to play a game of solitaire, you tell them you're not going to, you know, and trying to sort of sever the wires that connected Raymond. Right. To this conspiracy. But again, here, he has basically no proof that this has worked. And he lets Raymond go. Yes. Again. Yes. So Raymond gets a call and it turns out that it's his mother. And so that's when Marco finally puts together that Eleanor is the American operative controlling Raymond. And as Raymond sort of goes to meet, leaves to go meet his mother, he says, you're free now. Everything is fine. (laughs) I don't think he's fine. (laughs) But so he's sort of trusting that Raymond will, you know, call him before he does anything at the convention. So he's putting a lot of trust in Raymond at this point. Okay, so then we have the scene with Raymond and his mother. Yes. Where she finally lays out what the plan is here. Mm -hmm. And the plan is for Raymond, dressed as a priest, Mm -hmm. to sneak into the convention, assassinate the presidential nominee... With a Soviet rifle. ...during his acceptance speech. Mm -hmm. Senator Eislin will... The plan is that he will be cradling the body mm-hmm. of the presidential nominee and deliver a speech that will obviously secure him right. the nomination. And what what Eleanor says is that he will ride into the White House and be granted powers that will make mm-hmm. martial law look seem like... Seem like anarchy. Seem like anarchy. Which I right. loved because it that sort of also harkens back to post 9-11 strategy was yeah. very much that is like you capitalize on this terror attack yeah, it's in the order right stag to fire usher in strategy. this mm-hmm. complete sort of dismantling of civil liberties and people will allow you because they're so wrapped up in this sort of hysteria around some sort of foreign government coming in to yeah. sort of tear America down, which I thought was really great. Yeah. Okay, so maybe this is the place to talk about Eleanor and Iceland mm-hmm. Because they are not... And this is, again, where I feel like this movie does resonate with our modern day and with the current situation a little bit. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, they have not, like, dedicated themselves like to, the commun- to communist ideals. Mm-hmm. She seems to want power. Yes. It's, it's greed and power. Mm-hmm. It's not that she is, like... It's not like she's a Soviet sleeper agent. Right. It's not like she's been brainwashed. I don't think Iceland's been brainwashed. Mm -hmm. These are just greedy, power-hungry people who are doing what they're doing for no ideals of any kind. Right. Um, That's, I mean, that's the real cynicism. I mean, the Manchurian candidate is Iceland. Right. It's not Raymond. Right. And they are just terrible people. Yeah. Well, they're power-hungry social and political climbers who will hop on any ideological bandwagon that gets them to where they want to be. Right. And it happens to be communism <laughs> in right. this instance, yes. But it's they're not true believers. In no. fact, she says... She has a great 
last line, she says, you know, and then when I take power, they, meaning the communists, right. will be pulled down and ground into dirt for what they did to you and what they did and so contemptuously <laughs> underestimating me. Right. 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 So she's angry that the communists took Raymond and used him. Right. She said she didn't know it would be right. Raymond. She asked for an assassin and she didn't know that they would they take, would her, take they her, would her son. Take her son. Right. But, yeah, she's willing to, to bring them down. Mm-hmm. So she's not doing this for them. No. She's doing this purely for herself. Yes. Which I also happen to think is true of our current... Never mind. <laughs> so is this also the place where we should talk about the plan itself? Because mm-hmm. it it doesn't make any sense. You don't think so? Ex- explain to me... <laughs> and I know I'm nitpicky and it's not a major criticism of the film. Mm-hmm. Explain to me why any of this brainwashing stuff was necessary. Because you had to get Raymond to a place where he would murder at your bidding. But he but he doesn't... Raymond. There was no reason Raymond had to be the assassin. Mm-hmm. They could have just sent Chun Jin mm-hmm. in to shoot the presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Raymond wasn't on the stage with them. Raymond was hiding up in a room in the convention... In Madison Square Garden mm-hmm. with a sniper rifle. Why... why why did Raymond have to win the Congressional Medal of Honor and be a hero and come home? Mm. I thought it, it would make sense if Raymond was going to be a high-profile political figure. Sure. Or the candidate or the president mm-hmm. or whatever. But that's not what happens. No. It's, they just need him to pull a trigger. Right. Anyone could pull a trigger. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I think part of that is explained in that last speech between Eleanor and Raymond when she says they chose you in order to bind me to them. Like they guaranteed her loyalty by taking her son and sort of making him into the sort of instrument that they were going to use. Okay. So that's sort of I mean sure. right. So but and him so then that sort of explains why he I mean not necessarily but you know you you ha- you bring him home, you give him the congressional medal medal of honor, you create this narrative around him that he is the kindest, warmest, bravest, most amazing person ever in order to deflect any attention from him so then he sort of becomes almost this invisible person he can go into any space and no one's sort of going to question or no one would second guess his loyalties. Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, mean I, I, that's... You'd think they would because everybody he's come into contact with has dies, died. right. His wife, <laughs> her father, his former employer, the most prominent right. political mm-hmm. journalist in America. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's, I mean, that's sort of the only way that I can explain it because yes, they could have just... And I think they make some mention of the fact that, you know, Raymond had been shooting rifles since he was young, but assassins are typically raised from (laughs) childhood as well. So they could have, you know, just picked an assassin um, from anywhere. But I think it is in that speech, that that conversation between Eleanor and Raymond where she says they chose you because they needed to ensure that I would stay loyal to them. Except it has the exact opposite Except that, right, it just pisses her. Well, which is an interesting thing, right? Of like her role as political actor and conspiracist versus her role as mother. And so then once you have asked her as a mother to do something that inherently goes against her maternal instincts, 
she then is like, I will tear this you whole think thing Eleanor down. Has maternal well, that's instincts? A, I mean, I think she is enamored of her son in ways both natural and unnatural, right? So <laughs> she does at the end of that scene give him a kiss, kiss full is, on on the mouth, yeah, mm-hmm. right. So I do think that she, you know, loves him, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so is. You know, and I mean, she says it in the speech. She is very much, you know, pissed off at the fact that what she says is they basically, you know, took your soul out right. and replaced it with this this assassin, and they did it because they needed me. Um, but but Raymond was very clearly damaged yes. from childhood by this woman. Yes, but that just because the relationship is damaged doesn't mean that she wouldn't see it. That she wouldn't still feel some sort of protectiveness over him or some sort of I don't know. But I think that's the the only sort of way to explain why it had to be Raymond. Yeah. I mean it is fascinating. like the relationship is fascinating. Mm-hmm. The weird kind of almost, you know, Greek myth mm-hmm. dynamics, which which they reference in the it's conscious. They mm-hmm. at some point somebody talks about Orestes and Clytemnestra yep. and all of that. Um I don't know if the, we have anything to talk about with the with the female character. I know I mentioned that earlier, but with the three women, the three right. blonde women. Right. I mean, of um, the three, the, the only one with any sort of real agency is um, Eleanor. Like I said, I think that Josie was a narrative device at best. And Janet Lee's character, Rosie, I just, I don't understand that character. I don't it, understand. It seems like this little triumvirate of women mm-hmm. that that means something. Because mm-hmm. it is... These three blonde women, as you pointed out, they're all perfectly coiffed. Mm-hmm. They all look, in contrast to all the men in the film, they're all, all just perfectly put together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're all confident and controlled. Um, you even have, you know, it's Josie and Rosie. Right. You have those two characters. Their names seem to parallel them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with it. I haven't, mm-hmm. we only watched the film right. a little while ago. I haven't thought it all through yet, but there seems to be something going on there. We have that moment where. Josie comes in dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. Mm -hmm. And that is this, like, kind of mythical transference from the mother. Love of mother to love of wife. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, it's that's Raymond's moment of possible redemption. That's Mm -hmm. where he can, could have had a happy life. Right. With her. Right. He does, he does become a a totally different character with her. Yeah. He's like, I made a joke. Right. Did you hear that, Ben? I made a joke after he's married Josie. Not a good joke. Gaucho marks. But he makes a joke. Right. Sure. Which is very sad. It is very sad. I guess my my problem with with Josie and the whole sort of idea behind those types of female characters is you don't need a girlfriend or a wife. You need a fucking therapist. You need to be paying someone... To unpack all of that, and then you can actually go right. be with someone. But yes, um, so yeah, no, I, there probably is some sort of dynamic between those three women. It's just hard. It's it's hard because Josie is underwritten as a character. Yes, and Rosie, and Rosie is, is a mystery. Both underwritten and bizarre. <laughs> sort of this enigma. Yeah. You haven't said much about Angela Lansbury. Do you want to talk about... I fucking loved Angela Lansbury. She was so condescending and (laughs) sort of aristocratic almost. Yeah. Um, I loved her character. She just had some great lines and was basically telling Senator Iceland to shut the fuck up the whole time. Like, just do The grown-ups need to talk, she says. Do what I tell you to do. (laughs) Go over there and play while I go actually handle business. And it's my reference for... Angela Lansbury, like I've seen, I think my grandma used to watch um, 
uh, Murder, She Wrote, but I've only seen a few episodes of that. But my reference for Angela Lansbury is uh, Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast <laughs> <laughs> and her little son, Chip, the little Chip's uh-huh. cup, where she's very sort of, you know, maternal. Did they have the same and, relationship, and Mrs. She, Potts and Chip? They, they did not make out, from what okay. I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, she did pour her tea into him, which, you know, oh, we can... <laughs> Some symbolism there. That's very freaky. Yeah, um, but you know, so I'm used to her being this very sort of maternal but loving, and yeah, no, she's an evil bitch yes. in this movie. Which I I like a good evil bitch. Yeah. I like a cutting, smart female character. I'm all about it. <laughs> okay, so we're at the end of the movie. Yes, the convention is going on. Right. Uh So the president. So we get the, this great shot of. Um, Raymond walking into the convention center. Oh, the empty convention center. Before it starts. And so the, the lights are sort of going on. They're testing the lights and the lights are going on. So it plays with light and shadow. And he's sort of walking up to this projector room uh-huh. at the top of the convention center. And he's going up these stairs. And it's just a great sort of tracking shot of him going through these spaces in the convention center. And you get, center. when he walks into the convention center, you get those banners yes. coming down. Mm-hmm. Of the presidential nominee and Senator, Senator Iceland mirroring that shot of the Stalin from the Mao. dream of the <laughs> Stalin Mao. It's yeah, it's, it's great. a great shot. It is a perfect shot. Uh, so he's up there getting ready, and his instructions are to um, shoot the president in the head after he says a certain line, and that line is. Nor would I ask of any fellow American in defense of his freedom that which I would not gladly give myself, my life. Before my liberty. Yes. And then he's supposed to shoot him. So after not hearing from Raymond. (laughs) (laughs) Raymond and the colonel are sitting there and realize that they've been dumbasses. Right. He's like, maybe we should just go down to the convention (laughs) Maybe we should go check. And try to stop this. So Marco and the, I think it's the colonel, right? Yeah. Go down to the convention center. And, you know, at this point it's mobbed with people. And the convention is just about to start. And they sit through the... uh, the national anthem, and which I kind of love. It's like we're trying to save the life right. of the next president of the United States, but we must stand at attention for the anthem. But the national anthem starts, and you know these are soldiers. Right. They're like, oh, we have to stand here. And yes, salute. The brainwashing is strong. for the whole song. We're all brainwashed. Um, <laughs> so then uh, Marco spies the little like projector room with the light on, yeah. realizes that's where Raymond is. And so then we get a great shot of him sort of mirroring the path that Raymond took through all these sort of back ways right. through the convention center. And so as there are shots of Marco running through the convention center, we're getting cutting to shots of Raymond, you know, assembling the rifle, loading the guns, aiming it. And we see him aiming at the head of the presidential nominee so just as the president, the presidential nominee finishes the line, Raymond shifts his aim and shoots Senator Iceland in the head and then shoots his mother in the head. And they both just sort of collapse to the ground. And just as that's done, Marco runs into the room and is just like, you know, what have you done? And we see Raymond put on his Congressional Medal of Honor. Right. And he Which turned, is a nice moment. Like, it is a really beautiful. Like, he's finally earned yeah. it. Right. I'm like, now a hero. Right. He turns to Marco and he says, you know, you couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. So I had to. And then he shoots himself in the head. Right. So he had been deprogrammed. We yeah. weren't sure until right. that moment. Right. 
whether he had been deprogrammed, but it turns out he was, Mm -hmm. and he just decided that the only way to end this was to 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 kill Iceland and his mother. Yes. And we get this great epilogue with Marco sort of standing at the window as it's raining, and he's talking to Rosie, and he's sort of reading the epitaphs of the soldiers that received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Right. And he's trying to figure out, you know, what do you write for Raymond Shaw? Poor Raymond, poor friendless, friendless Raymond. He was wearing his medal when he died. Made to commit acts too unspeakable to be cited here by an enemy who had captured his mind and his soul. He freed himself at last and in the end heroically and unhesitatingly gave his life to save his country. And that's the movie. And that's the movie. That is the Manchurian Candidate. <laughs> it sounds like you liked it better than I did, actually. I really liked it. I loved the I loved Frankenheimer's direction. Yes. I, I got a little pissy about the plot. And I mean, there stuff. are definitely... It's some... unusual for you to like something more than I like Yeah. It. Well, I'm also... I'm a sucker for good visuals. And I appreciate... Even if I don't understand it, I appreciate someone that tries to do something interesting. And, you know, you almost get there. Like, there are just a couple scenes. Like the scene with Josie on the... Tr- I mean, with the scene with Rosie on the train. Uh-huh. The dialogue between Marco and Rosie that doesn't make any sense. Um, and her character just is insignificant. But, like, if you take that out, is it then less of a film or is it better? I don't know. I mean, know. It, it's less weird. Right. Which... So, it's like, I think I appreciate... The just unsettling weirdness right. of this film is part of its appeal. Right. So. so, I think I almost appreciate it. And maybe this is me sort of projecting onto it of, like, it unsettles the audience on a number of levels both intentionally and unintentionally and so that adds to sort of the experience of watching it which I think I appreciate. I think the other problem I had with it is when I came out of it I'm like okay I'm not sure what the takeaway is what it's actually Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. except that everybody is right I think that's part of like it's all a farce that it's all sort of a, a cynical power grab and you know, there are no heroes sort of right. thing. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't, I don't know that it comes down on one side or the other. So what about it's uh, circling back to where we started this conversation, mm-hmm. it's resonance or lessons <laughs> for our current political climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, there were a lot of echoes. Yeah. <laughs> there were, I mean, even little stuff. Like <clears throat> there were at the convention, there were America first signs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the lesson that the person screaming publicly about a dangerous threat to democracy is probably the the person who is the threat to democracy. (laughs) That's the he who smelt it, dealt it philosophy of Mm -hmm. politics. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, it isn't just the, uh, you know, a reflection of the current occupant. I mean, like I said, there were sort of mirrors to what happened around 9-11. Like, this is just... Right. In which we gave George W. Bush... Right unprecedented powers george bush was uh george w bush was able to sort of exploit the attack to usher in you know these laws that had sort of civil liberty reverberations that i don't think people had fully thought through right just because they were sort of wrapped into wrapped in the um wrapped up in the hysteria of everything and so again it's like is that about ideology or is that about power because once you sort of codify something 
it's hard to sort of walk those things back. And it's, it's unlikely that future presidents would walk those things back, right? Because it's like, okay, well, here's another little inch of power and I'm just going right. to hold Ob- on to Obama didn't right. get those powers Exactly, back. so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hold on to that. And then yeah. you inch it a little bit further. I'm just going to hold right. on to that. And it's, it, 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 it gets further and further away from this sort of purported uh, goal of, you know, protecting American democracy or blah, blah, blah. It, it really is about securing power. And in America, power is very much tied to capitalism and monetary gain. Yeah. And as this movie understands, the way you get that is you have an enemy right. that you can make people hysterical about. Right. And, you know, currently it's ISIS and immigrants. Mm-hmm. As of today, Trump is threatening to shut down the government mm-hmm. if Democrats don't vote for his wall. Right. Yeah. So I think the movie is right on as far as understanding how all of this works. Mm-hmm. You could almost take the brainwashing thing out of it. Yeah. Like that's that's the far-fetched and kind of most old-fashioned piece of it. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it does seem a little naive. Well, and you don't like, need you don't, it. you don't need brainwashing. Well, because there's something much more insidious than that that is already sort of built into who we are as a country, right? So if, right. I mean, at the top of the show, we were sort of talking about, you know, the umbrella to all this is white supremacy, right? right. So you don't need a sleeper, a Russian sleeper agent or anything like that. What right. you need is voter ID laws. What you need is shortened early voting periods. What you, you know, so there are very American legal ways right. that you can create the power structure that you want. We have seen it. That is what this country is sort of built on. So it does almost seem fantastical because it's like, well, you don't really need to do all of that. All you need to do is make sure that black and brown and low income people can't vote. Right. That's it. It's really all you need. And you need to create. And even though there are facts out about the fact that, say, MS-13 gang members are not in, you know, rural Iowa (laughs) raping white women, all you need to do is say that that's what's happening and say it on television and make sure it plays enough. And then that becomes what people believe. Right. They're not asking, is MS-13 in Iowa? They're asking, how how many many MS-13 gang members are in Iowa? So, you know, this idea that there has to be this really intricate plot around a sleeper agent is like, well, no, no. Not you so need, much. You may, you know, if you, to instill someone in a presidency, you don't necessarily, you need someone who's greedy and amoral, who will do anything to attain power. And once that person is in power, um, they can sort of capitalize and on an already existing inequitable uh, electoral system. And then you have America on a platter. Like, that's really all it takes. Okay, so we've ended where we began in a super cheery place. Yeah, this was not... A fun or funny episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you liked the movie. I really did. I really did like the movie. It definitely had its its problems, but I really liked it a lot, actually. I'm actually a little curious now to watch the remake, the remake yeah. with Denzel. Well, see, and the funny thing about that was I thought that Denzel was the Raymond Shaw character. Okay. Or the Manchurian Candidate in the remake. And right. then, but you told me he actually plays the Frank Sinatra he's, part. Right. He's Marco. Yeah. Um, which I guess makes sense because there's a level of invisibility and access that th- that though the Manchurian Candidate role and Raymond Shaw's role call for that, I guess what yeah. you say, pre-Obama, it's- we were not <laughs> putting black people in those spaces. Like it would, it, there would have been a conspicuousness around his very racialized presence. Right. So I understand that. But Le- Leave Schreiber is uh, okay. Is the mm-hmm. 
the Raymond character in the remake. And I, I think that's actually good casting. Mm-hmm. He actually plays a Russian sleeper agent in Salt, that movie with Angelina. Spoiler alert. Sorry. It's really good, though. Angelina Jolie is really good in it. And she, like, I wish she would do more films like that. She's very good in that sort of ass-kicking role. And uh, Meryl Streep is is the Eleanor role in, mm. in that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, maybe we'll watch that. Okay. Okay. Anything else on this one? No, I think that's it. Okay, we'll try to find something silly for next week to talk about. Okay. That'd be great. <laughs> That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week as we turn our attention from the imminent fall of Western civilization to something far more lighthearted, fighting Nazis. Nakia, I promised you something fun, and what's more fun than Indiana Jones? I've seen it. No, you haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure I've seen it. No. Technically, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, which you did not properly appreciate and which I guarantee you don't even remember. There were melting faces. <laughs> you remember anything else about it? Uh, probably some problematic racial oh, shit. Okay. I feel like there was like bad, like something was. I remember something not being right. I don't okay. remember exactly what it was, but yes. Okay, so because mm-hmm. you've technically seen the first one, we mm-hmm. are going to watch the next best film in the franchise, which is the third one, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I'm not looking forward to that. I know. Is that the one with Shia? Isn't Shia in one of them? (laughs) No, we are not watching the Shia one. Okay. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at FreeRangeCritic. Send an email to Michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. And leave us a review on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a movie that you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch.